Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. Today's show, we will be talking about the first MotoGP round of 2016 from Qatar. My name is Neil Morrison, and you can find me on Twitter at NeilMorrison87. And with me today are... David Emmett. Um, I'm at MotoMatters on Twitter. And Stephen English, and you can follow me on Twitter at SteveEnglishGP. So before we get started, a message to our listeners, and we hope that all of you are following the show on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. And also on Twitter, at paddockpasspod. And if you happen to listen to us on iTunes, please be sure to leave a review and a rating, as it greatly helps other MotoGP fans find our show. Okay, so now... On to the meaty content. Uh, we have just seen the first race of the MotoGP season from Qatar. Um, it maybe didn't throw up as many uh, surprises as we were all predicting through the off-season. Um, what were your initial impressions, David? It was, as you said, not very many surprises, almost zero surprises. But, uh, um, you know, we this is supposed to be a revolution. We have new tyres, Michelins. Uh, we have uh, the spec electronics, uh, um, which should make a more level playing field. But on a more level playing playing field, the best riders in the world just go faster because they've got the best teams in the world to, um, uh, to, to help them go faster. So... Uh, this was much more of an evolution than a revolution and much more of an evolution than we ex- the, than we expected, really. Though I do wonder uh, how much that was affected by the fact that we, you know, they spent three, three days testing here uh, uh, two weeks ago. Um, so they came pretty well prepared. Yeah, and I think, David, if you look back to what we said in the Qatar preview, a lot of what we actually expected did happen. We said that the top riders were still going to be the top riders. We said overtaking was still going to be a challenge because guys needed to learn how to get the most from the Michelins. The electronics are clearly um, a bugbear for everyone. You're losing an awful lot of your performance from it. But as you said, David, just having the best minds in the world helps the factory teams to a much greater extent. We saw some promising performances. Vinales on the front row, that's a really good sign for Suzuki. But we also saw still that the Suzuki isn't an all-round package that's capable of being able to fight with the Yamahas, the Hondas and the Ducatis on a regular basis just yet. One lap pace is really impressive, but the bike is still underpowered. It's still not quite fast enough to be able to get into a proper proper fight with the other manufacturers yet. Yeah, I do I do wonder, uh, because Qatar itself is, is a little bit tricky, track's very dirty, that can make passing difficult. Also, we saw with Iannone's crash, you know, Iannone touches the word, the white line and he's gone. Uh, that The dew, especially at that time of night, starts to settle on the uh, on the curbs and, and perhaps that makes riders a little bit more cautious than they might be at another track. Yeah, I think it'll definitely take us until we get, like we said in the Qatar preview, it's going to take us the three flyaway races, get back to Europe. That's where we'll get the, the true picture emerging. And I definitely believe that. I think once we get back to Hareth, that's where everyone will have settled in on, on a base setting. Everyone will understand the electronics, the tyres so much better. And then we'll be able to take from Hareth onwards. This is what we can really expect for the new season. In Qatar, as you said, David, they had three days of testing. It's a, it's a tricky circuit, especially whenever we had rain during the week and things like that, where... You, you lose all the grip that is down. You have to start rubbering in the track again. And it does cause an awful lot of problems for the riders. By the end of the weekend, I think everyone had dialed themselves in quite well. But because of just how dusty it is offline, it's it's very difficult to make those overtaking moves. Even when you saw riders that were a lot faster than, uh, than the group in front of them. Like we saw a few times where people were half a second a lap faster than the guys that they were chasing. But 
just because it's such a narrow line if you couldn't blast past someone on the straight it was it was almost impossible to force an overtaking move in Qatar yeah and that was something that we saw um, not only from uh, I think Rossi commented at the end of the race that he was always within you know touching distance of the guys in front of him uh, but just never quite close enough to make a you know a, a banzai move and it was the same with Vinales who found himself just behind Pedroza for the first part of the race in the first 10 laps and again you know he said that he was faster than Pedroza Pedroza was holding him up but he just didn't have that confidence just that feeling to to pitch it up the inside of him into you know one of the slower corners of the, cir- of the circuit yeah i mean the only uh, the, the only factory to actually or the only riders to actually be able to uh, really attack people were the ducatis and they were just doing it on sheer balls out horsepower uh, and and acceleration uh, speaking of which one of the biggest surprises for me was how awful that Honda looked how slow it looked coming out of the, the final corner. It was it, it, they were they were getting you know humiliated out of those lo- out of the last corners. It was bad at uh, Valencia last year, and this this time it just looked worse. Yeah, no, it was similar to what we saw in Le Mans last year. Whenever you had Marquez up against Ianone, and they'd be coming out of out of corners, and you'd see Marquez get on the gas, suddenly open up with a big wheelie, whereas the Ducati was just keeping things flat and planted, and able just to accelerate away on the exit of the corner. And it was the same again. Any time that you saw Marquez trying to attack Davi over the weekend, he just couldn't couldn't generate that grip on on acceleration, and it, and it's going to be the story of the year until Honda somehow managed to find the solution and on the basis of what we've seen over the last couple of years it's very difficult to actually think that suddenly out of nowhere Honda are going to figure it out and be able to to give their riders that package for this weekend Marquez was able to make it work we saw him in qualifying especially he said that uh, you know him having his all action style was the only way he was able to actually make a lap time and that works fine one race it may not work well in Argentina it may not work well in Texas it may work well in Jerez but it's nothing that you can build consistently for a championship charge and until they're able to give Marquez and Pedroza a bike that actually allows them to build their confidence they're going to struggle yeah I, I agree with you to an extent but when you look at the strides that uh, that Honda has made since I think even the second day in testing in Qatar I think uh, I was looking back at the times from that day and on the second day of testing Marquez did I think his fastest lap was a low 56 he did 13 of those laps and then you know he went on and obviously made big big strides on the final day and then in the race he put together 19 uh, one minute 55 lap times you know from 22 which is you know quite a turnaround it's quite um, it's quite a staggering achievement and um, you know do you put that down to just mark find refinding his confidence um, was there was there general genuinely any huge strides with the bike I think that they made a lot of steps forward but the fact that Pedroza is almost a second a lap off the pace in the race that's what's worrying and that's what makes me think that a lot of what we saw in Qatar comes down to Marquez. We saw an awful lot of times last year that whenever he gets himself dialed in and he's got some of that confidence just to to trust that the front end isn't going to fold on him under breaking and things like that, that he's able to, to make times like that. But the fact that Pedroza was so off the pace all weekend, that's what leads me to believe that Mark was just being Mark again. And the Honda still isn't sorted. And that's why I think, you know, get through these three flyaways, see where the bike is at. And then we'll actually be able to understand exactly what to expect from him this year. 
Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, there you see a lot of that with the two, uh, with the satellite Hondas as well. I mean, uh, uh, Cal was unlucky. Cal actually had a uh, had a a decent uh, a, a decent race until his uh, bike got confused and 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 managed to crash itself. Uh, but if you look at you know, I mean, Jack Miller, Tito, are about obviously Tito's a rookie. You can't really expect very much of him, and he's certainly delivering on that. Um, uh, <laughs> The uh, but Meow. but 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 Jack Miller, you know Jack Miller was what thirty of thirty or forty seconds off the pace. I can't remember. That's a long, long, long way for someone in his in his second year. Essentially, the same as Scott Redding last year. Yeah, yeah. What I'd say is most worrying for for Miller especially is yeah he is recovering from his injury. Even whenever we saw him going for the 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 preseason photo shoot on the Wednesday. He didn't wear his boot whenever he was walking up and down pit lane. He was doing his best to keep as much uh, comfort on his on his injured ankle. But Bautista just ate time in that final sector and he was pulling in six, seven tenths a second a lap on a factory Honda. And that's what that's what shows just how big of a gap there is for the, the satellite riders especially to make up. And I'm sure that once Miller gets his his fitness back up when he's fully recovered from that ankle injury, he's not going to be fighting with the Aprilias. But it's a big step that needs to be made by all the Honda riders right now. Yeah. Like Mark, as we, as I said, like impressive this weekend, could easily have finished second. But you could see how hard he had to push. And, and as nearly as you said... The lap times were, were really good for Marquez and it made a huge step forward compared to the test. But we need to see it on a couple more tracks that this is what we can expect from him this year before I'm really willing to, to buy that he's a title contender again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think when you look at the, the, the overall race time, it was seven seconds faster than the 2015 race. Uh, Lorenzo's fastest lap came in lap 20, I think, and it was yeah, some yeah. three tenths, maybe four tenths faster than Rossi's fastest time from uh, a year ago. Um, the top three were pretty universal in the praise of, of the Mitchell and tires, both in the you know their performance and uh, the durability um, over the race distance. Um, was that a surprise to you? Not really, because when... When, when we talked to the Michelin guys through the year, I remember the first time that we had a real good sit down with them was at the Sepang test last year. And they said right from the outset that uh, the goal for them was that riders would be able to set as fast a lap on lap 20 as they could on lap two. That you wouldn't have that big drop in performance midway through the race. What they also said was you wouldn't have the same ultimate performance from the tyre. It would just be a much more consistent tyre that will make it more attractive for people that are looking to buy road tyres that they're able to see. This is what you can get from a Michelin tyre at the beginning and at the end of its life. It's still got an awful lot of performance in it. And they've, they've definitely stuck to those goals and achieved them really well. And I think when you look at the race, like obviously we weren't in Qatar this year, but we were all on Skype, on WhatsApp, just talking to each other the whole way through the race. And when Lorenzo put in that fast lap at the end, all of us just had the exact same text of, Jesus, that's an impressive lap time straight away. <laughs> and it's what broke the rest of the field, gave him the win. And I think that's what we can expect from the Michelins. He saw pretty much as a rule, everyone set their fastest lap, lap 14, 15, 16. And it just shows that guys are going to have to really adapt through the race and just be ready to set those times late in the race to be able to to either break away from the people that they're fighting with or to try and put someone under pressure. Yeah, I mean, the, the comments that I found really interesting in the press conference were the fact that um, uh, all three of them said, you know, the rear tire was completely destroyed um, 
but it was still fast, even though it was destroyed. You know, it was sliding around, but they could still they could still you know find a way to go fast. The 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 edge grip was gone, um, but they were still getting drive. They were still uh, uh, yeah. I mean. But the, well, the, the lap times speak to the, speak for themselves, really. Yeah, yeah. And I think what, one of the other things that I found um, surprising was something that Steve, you've already mentioned, was, you know, Mark is saying about how he has been basically riding his bike this year as he was last year, late braking, all action, sliding it in. And I also noticed that Davizioso was saying that even late into the race, he was able to apply maximum front brake uh, with, you know, high lean angle, as you kind of did with the Bridgestones. And he was saying that, you know, that's, that's really good. That's, you know, that's a huge step that they've made forward from, you know, last year the end of last year when that that kind of breaking wasn't possible at all yeah and neil like we found it whenever we went to the philip island test just the 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 contrast between what we heard the riders say at the valencia test to sepang was quite pronounced or sorry to to philip island was quite pronounced and then it's clear that michelin have made another step forward since then they are taking what riders say on board and developing those tires quite a lot and and that's what's positive for uh, for the riders they're able to see a change in the tires they're keeping relatively the same characteristics but it's just something that's a lot more dependable for everyone yeah yeah I think we've been um, we've been somewhat spoiled um, in terms of the first race of the season over the past couple of years. Certainly in 2015, uh, 2014, and 13, I think there was you know real fantastic you know curtain raises. Um, you know what did you think of the spectacle itself? Um, was it was it good for you, David? No, I wouldn't call it exciting. Um, it was tense uh, more than anything else. I mean, it was one of those races which we get sometimes where you have the feeling that anything could happen, uh, but then at the end of the 21 laps, you find out that nothing much did happen in the end, but it, but it might have happened. And that is, uh, uh, that's, that, that's just... That's just the way racing is sometimes. But still, I mean, again, the the to me the most promising thing is the fact that the you know the top four are all finished within two seconds. Uh, uh, second through fourth, I think was the. I'm not even sure there was a second. There was a second covering them. It was uh, it was all pretty close. And of course, if um, Ianoni hadn't uh, and and you know binned it, then he might have been there as well and made it even more added even more to the to, to the excitement. Yeah, I heard exactly what he was saying after the race, and he seemed very, very sure that he would have been fighting with Jorge uh, right up until the end of the race. <clears throat> Do you think he would have made a, a, a drastic uh, difference to the overall results, Steve? Yeah, I definitely think that just having another rider in there would have had an impact. I think Lorenzo showed he had more pace than anyone else, but I think just having Ione there with another Ducati, with that top end, it just would have made things an awful lot more difficult. But just going back to the spectacle of things, I think this race showed how much everyone has changed how they watch races as well though because i think if you were looking at this race and you watch it back on the video pass or something like that and you just watch it as the race it's not really that exciting but whenever you watch it while looking at the live timing while keeping up to date with with twitter and things like that suddenly you start to see a much more complete picture and whenever you're able to see the sector times and see that like in sector two you know someone's pulling out a couple of tents it it does add an awful lot to it and that's why whenever I was watching the race, um, as you said, David, you know, nothing changed at the end of the race. It was, you know, pretty much as it had been the whole way through through proceedings. But just when you watch sector by sector and you see, you know, Rossi, as you said, Neil, he, he wasn't able to close that gap on the other guys, but he was constantly within a couple of hundreds of them each sector. And I think he ran wide at turn seven and then you knew that was it. He, he wasn't going to be able to fight for the for the podium but you look at uh, the sector times and you, you did think for 
you know, the last five, six laps that there was a chance that he was going to get in there with that fight with Marquez and on Davi as well. Yeah, I think it was interesting listening to what Iannone said after the race because he was talking about how Davizioso and him both had different strategies. You could see in the early laps that when Davizioso was leading, he wasn't pushing on because he was obviously quite wary of the, the performance of the tyres and how they would they would react at the start of the race. Iannone, on the other hand, as we saw just before he crashed when he barged Davizioso out of the way on the exit of turn one, he he was very keen to get to the front of the race and basically lead from the front. Um, and I kind of think that, you know, had he not crashed, if Lorenzo was going up against two Ducatis um, and Iannone was so determined to stay out in front coming out of the first corner, you know, that really could have made Lorenzo's life quite difficult considering the top speed advantage that the Ducati had. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with two Ducatis in there, then you have, you know, a, a double-pronged attack and uh, Lorenzo would have had to work twice as hard to actually uh, to get the win. Whereas um, he... Lorenzo was always capable of pulling enough gap uh, around the uh, uh, sort of around the back of the circuits to keep his lead, or either keep his lead uh, down the front straight, or when he lost it, to be able to uh, be sure that he could get it back. It reminded me an awful lot of uh, seeing, uh, you know, Rossi versus the Ducatis in. Uh, 07, 08 I think uh, where um, uh, Rossi was versus was running against Casey Stoner and, and you know Stoner had uh, had the acceleration out of the final quarter and the, and the top speed um, but Rossi had the edge uh, around the uh, around the back of the circuit and that uh, it, again, it, it seems to be the same thing. Yamaha agility versus uh, ju- just you know driving grunt and acceleration of the Ducati. Yeah, and just for the Ducati in 07, it was enough to get them wins. But that's because you had someone like Stoner. I think for Ian One, we need to see that he does make that step because I think we've all said it for the last year. Ducati should have won races last year. I think if they had had a top line rider, they would have won races. Ian One looks like he's able to make that step and be that guy. I think. At the end of the day, we know what we're going to get with Davi. He's been in the Premier class long enough to know that he's he's a very good rider, but he's only got one win to his name. So I think Ian One needs to be the guy that really takes control of the team, picks up an early season win and uses the momentum then through the season. Because in Qatar, again, it was it looked like it was Ian One that was able to force the issue for the Ducatis. And I definitely think if it was Ian One against Lorenzo, Lorenzo would have had a harder time. Yep. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, you know, now that we're going to Argentina, Texas, um, two race circuits that Ianone was very strong at last year, and Davizioso too, um, it should be interesting to see just how, how the Ducati reacts uh, around there. Um, looking at Mr. Vinales, now he had a very interesting weekend. Um, on the first night of free practice, he had none other than Valentino Rossi singing his praises and, and saying that he was going to be winning races very soon in the future. Um, he then qualified in the front row. That was very impressive. Um, I was speaking to a colleague, uh, Peter McLaren, who was at the circuit, and he said he was speaking to, uh, to Vinales after the press conference on Saturday. And Vinales was absolutely sure that he could have uh, that he could run with uh, the leaders through the race. Um, his pace in morning warm up or the afternoon warm up didn't really. Um, do anything to suggest otherwise uh, yet he found himself kind of in a frustrating position um, sixth place wasn't quite what he, what he was expecting um, was this was this a disappointment? For me it wasn't uh, this is where I expected Vinales to finish I think we saw again he was probably faster than Pedroza but the Suzuki just isn't fast enough to actually get past someone and stay past them like they've made a big step with that top with their top speed but it's still a deficit and I think when you look at Vinales, you can see a guy that's riding 
really, really well. We saw all weekend how fast he was, but a race isn't about how fast you can do 20 laps. It's about how fast you can race the guys around you. And whenever you're being blocked in by not having that top end, it just makes it so much more difficult for you to actually run what kind of pace you're capable of. If Vinal is a clear track, if everyone was going off in a time trial, he probably wouldn't have finished sixth. But the fact is, we go off in a grid and you have to race the guys around you and the Suzuki still is just lagging behind. We saw it off the line. He went from the front row back to seventh or eighth. And a lot of that comes down to just your your acceleration and your power but it was the one weakness we saw from Vinales last year consistently in the first two three laps he was tentative he was wary about having an instant and it just put him back into the midfield pack and when you talk to riders in the midfield they all said the same thing early laps you knew you, could, you knew that you could get past Vinales but uh, once you got three four five laps in you knew he was coming back past you and just Vinal is giving up that ground in the start that's the one area he needs to focus on this year and then Suzuki need to clearly focus on just getting more top end as well yeah I mean I think the, 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 certainly the most worrying thing for me in terms of Suzuki is the fact that uh, he couldn't get past the uh, Pedrosa on the Honda uh, and if you're by, at the moment it looks like the Honda has the weakest acceleration almost on the grid because I suspect it's even weaker than um, uh, than the Aprilia's um, but uh, if Suzuki can't get past the Honda then it, then they've really still got an awful lot of work to do but it reminded me a lot of the uh, the 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 the, the triples in in the 500 days the proton kr for example which is a fantastic bike it had more horsepower than the uh, uh, than the twins which meant it could actually run with the 500s with the with the with the fours um with the four cylinders but it could you know it could never really quite get past them it could never actually um hold it could they'd always it always get killed on uh, killed on acceleration coming out of corners and and so you know in theory it could run the same lap time but running the same lap time isn't the same as actually winning in a race because you have to get ahead of someone to be able to uh, to to be able to win yeah and it always comes back to if you're given two bikes that can do the exact same lap time but one of them is a little bit faster in a straight line which one are you going to take everyone's always going to take the one that's a bit faster in a straight line because it makes things easier for you the Suzuki, as you said, Dave, it's a really apt comparison to the, the KR3. And it really is a case of, you know, it, with that bike, we saw Jeremy McWilliams put it on pole position at Phillip Island against the four strokes. And in the race, he fell down like a stone because you need to be able to race the guys around you and carry those lines. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you, ca- you can't you can't carry the lines if there's some uh unpleasant gentleman on a uh, big fat fast thing ahead of you who then pr- pr- proceeds to blow you into the weeds uh, out of the next corner yeah I'll, I'll echo what you were saying there David that I found it very surprising that Vinales was I think he pinpointed um, turns 6 and 10 the exit of those corners you know the two kind of hairpin turns on the track that Pedroza was just like gaining on him constantly every lap, um, which I found quite surprising, you know, considering the the extra horsepower that that engine has uh, for this year. Um, but I was looking through <clears throat> times from last year and, and Vinales was still, I think, um, nearly 12 seconds faster than the best Suzuki time from the 2015 race, which roughly equates to about half a second a lap, which, you know, is still quite a considerable gain, you know, on the, on the whole part. Yeah, it definitely made a step. But when you also factor in that the race was seven seconds faster than last year, it's, you know, it's five seconds over the course of 20 laps they've had a year's worth of data you'd expect them to make that kind of step in year two as well and that's not to take anything away from it i do think that the suzuki is an awful lot better this year again neil like when we went to, to phillip island you could see 
how much more comfortable it was for the riders, even compared to the Grand Prix there. But it's just a case that there's still more work to be done. Yeah. Yeah, it is worth noting also that um, that both Maverick and Elish were running the first um, spec of Seamless, not the second one, which they hope to be running in Argentina, which obviously will be a, another boost, you would have to say. Yeah, because if you look at last year, the big step that Yamaha made was with Seamless down. I think uh, going into 2015, the one thing that was always an issue for the Yamaha was that under braking, they were giving up so much to the Honda. The Seamless down basically negated that difference, made the M1 the best bike on the grid. So once Suzuki gets Seamless up and down working correctly, they will make another step forward. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, the difference was uh, because, you know, you said, all right, Maverick was, what, 12 seconds faster than um, uh, um, uh, than the fastest Suzuki last year. Because uh, uh, I think after the race, Vinales said something about, yeah, well, I was, you know, basically a, a half the distance the, the half the gap to the front from last year. Well, for a start, it was his first. Uh, it was his first race on the Suzuki last year, and his first race in MotoGP. So that's that's a big difference. But then, so I went and looked at the times. It is the the, the gap is basically five seconds. Suzuki have have improved by five seconds. Um, uh, overall, once you subtract the seven uh, the, the 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 seven seconds that the that the, the pace has improved, um, I think it's going to be it, it's going to be interesting at Argentina, not just because of the uh, if they do use the if they can use the seamless the fully seamless gearbox but also because um uh, Argentina flows a lot more there aren't the there aren't so many of the hairpins where they're going to get murdered on acceleration except perhaps the I think the last corner um, uh, the, the last corner onto the onto the front straight which is a bit a, a little bit unfortunate but you know they can the, the, the track flows more they can maybe carry more speed and, and, and be closer to the front the one thing about Argentina as well though is it's going to be a closer race because last year we saw the closest race of all time from front to back of the field and it's a it's a track where it's about maintaining your momentum. It's hard to actually really lose a lot of time in some of the corners. But I think when we go to Argentina, you're going to see the likes of the Avintias, the Aspars, an awful lot stronger as well compared to what they were in uh, in Qatar. Like obviously Barbara was really impressive this weekend. But when you look at Baz, Hernandez, Laverty, they were a step behind him and I think when we get to Argentina they'll actually make a step forward which is going to make the midfield even more competitive so it's going to be even more important for everyone to actually get their bikes working from the outset in Argentina. Yeah and just to go just to go back to Vinales very quickly I was listening to what he said after the race and he although he he was you know he, he expressed his gratitude to the team um, you know thanked them for all the hard work thanks Suzuki for the improvements that they'd made he also did say that you know he was absolutely sure that now he can run with the front guys and you know it's kind of up to both himself and to Suzuki to come to that level so you get the impression that if he doesn't come to that level in the next, you know, three or four races. Uh, he'll be looking for a way out. Well, I, I think that he will be looking for a, uh, a way out. And, well, this is something we're going to have to talk about uh, at some point. Obviously, um, uh, he is the hot ticket in the in contract signings. And we saw already contracts being signed in, uh, in Qatar, which is ridiculously early. Um, uh, we saw Yamaha sign, uh, Yamaha sign Rossi for two years and then um, Lynn Jarvis explained very patiently that yes he sent out two emails at exactly the same time with uh, uh, with their contracts to Rossi and Lorenzo so there was no favoritism whatsoever um, but Lorenzo hasn't signed yet um, uh, we saw uh, uh, yeah I mean that 
you have to think that um, uh, Maverick is looking at um, the Ducati, looking very closely at what Lorenzo is going to do to see if Lorenzo is actually going to sign back with uh, uh, sign back up with Yamaha because you know put him on a Yamaha and and I think Maverick thinks that he can win a championship on it definitely yeah because as we've said time and time again from midway through last season if you're looking for any rider that apes lorenzo's style it's vinales you you stand trackside and like he's silky smooth just like lorenzo he last year i think there was just issues just trying to get the most out of himself on the bike whereas year two this is where you tend to see an awful lot of riders make that big step forward you saw it with pedroza with stoner with guys like that and that's what vinales has to do this year and i think it definitely looks like he's ready to make that step and uh he's he is going to be the hot ticket because you know this is a guy that won his fourth race and one two fives was his second race in Moto Two, you know he came straight into Moto GP and was was on the pace right from the right from the start as well. So he is a guy that teams know what they're going to get with him. You know if you're yeah. if you're looking at, at right now Moto GP, you're probably looking at the most competitive era we've ever seen. Absolutely. If, uh, if someone like Rossi is third or fourth best rider on the grid, it shows how strong things are. If Pedroza is being looked at as being, you know, a, a talented rider but just not quite good enough. That shows Defensible. you the depth that there is. And uh, Vinales looks like he's the guy that's able to probably be the, the surest ticket for you to buy if you want to make that step. Ducati has Iannone already. They've said time and time again how much confidence they have in him being their guy for the future. Now, if they do go out and sign Lorenzo, it does open the door for Vinales into that second second seat at, uh, at Yamaha. But... Honda are going to be interested in him as well. He was Repsol backed whenever he was younger and he's the right nationality, he's the right speed. It's just a question of whether or not that uh, they think that having him and Marquez together actually makes sense. And that's where the, the Yamaha becomes probably the most attractive proposition for Vinales. You know that uh, Rossi's coming to the end of his career. You could be the you could be the, the lead Yamaha guy going forward if Lorenzo does leave. So that's where that, that one makes a lot of sense. It was interesting, though, that this weekend was when we all started to hear about Zarco to Suzuki, which took us all by surprise. Like I think uh, the three of us have talked about it a lot over the course of the last year. And for us, KTM is the one that makes sense for Zarco yeah. because it will more than likely still be involved with the IO team. And uh, it's the only team that he's worked with that he's had successful results. He said that he needs to be in an environment that's conducive for him, where clearly he needs to feel, you know, a lot of a lot of love from the team. And Suzuki might well be able to provide that. But we all thought that like the surest thing was that KTM would have provided that. So it's interesting that uh, Suzuki are already looking at uh, rider options for next year, whether that's to get someone to replace Vinales if he jumps ships, or whether or not it's to basically give Alicia Spagaro the heave oh that remains to be seen but when you look at uh, Spagaro's comments over the winter when you look at his performance in Qatar it's hard really to to justify his position there whenever you see Vinales qualify in the front row and finish 
comfortably ahead of him in the race. Yeah, I mean, you're right. We all penciled, uh, we'd all had Sarko penciled in at uh, KTM. Um, and then, well, obviously they announced that they signed Bradley Smith, which I think, I mean, I predicted that they would. And it's a brilliant signing for them because he's exactly what they need, a very, very technical rider, someone who uh, understands at a very deep level what a motorcycle needs and can communicate it really perfectly. Um, uh, whether he's ever going to win a world championship or not it's a, it's a different kettle of fish but uh, uh, right now that isn't the stage at which the KTM uh, is their project so I'm not entirely sure that KTM um, I mean it makes you wonder why KTM didn't sign Zarco so perhaps Suzuki signed Zarco because, uh, because there was no interest from, uh, from KTM and maybe that is a little bit of a worry if uh, the feedback that they're getting, if they're talking to Io and the feedback they're getting from Io is that, you know, he's a great rider, he's really, really smooth. If he's in the right um, uh, environment, uh, but we're not sure about his feedback, you know, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, and I think um, by and large, everyone in the paddock works off an eyeball test. You know, there's going to be times where someone will take a gamble on someone else, but whether it's journalists, whether it's team bosses, whether it's sponsors, everyone looks at, well, what's the track record of this rider? And Zarko's track record, his CV, he's got a he's got a world championship to his name, he's got a lot of GP wins to his name now, but his CV is, isn't impressive for for uh, the most part. It took him a long time to get competitive in 125s. He, he came into, into Moto2 in 2012 and it took him a few years to get to a stage where he was actually able to, to challenge at the front. And whenever you look at Rins, when you look at uh, Vinales, when you look at guys that jumped straight into Grand Prix classes and were quick, and that's what team bosses see. It's fine that there's guys like Tito Rabat that show that uh, you know hard work combined with with some talent can let you win a world championship, but no one's going to be knocking down the doors to sign a Tito Rabat to a factory Yamaha factory Honda contract. Same with Zarco for my money anyway. And uh, when when you look at what he's achieved, he's always needed that IO team to actually be a front runner. Yeah, uh, the, the the only thing that I can think about the Suzuki the the, the Suzuki signing because Zarco is again another rider who's fantastic corner speed, um, uh, very smooth. Um, I think his his style would definitely suit the um, it would definitely suit Suzuki. Uh, but as you say, Steve, you have to you have to question just how quick he's he's going to be uh, and and especially I mean if you've got because we know that Rince is coming and we know that Rince wants a factory contract uh, the, the question is if you're Suzuki why don't you throw a lot of money at, uh, at Alex Rince rather than a little bit of money at, uh, at Johan Zarco yeah and that, that's definitely the way I'd look at it as well David because the, the thing is if Suzuki managed to keep hold of Vinales I can understand Zarco because you've already got your team leader but if they lose Vinales, what's the attraction of going out to sign Zarco? Yeah, yeah. It's hard to argue with that. Absolutely. Um, shall we move on to Moto2 then? Well, the, just just one question about Repsol, because to me, Repsol Honda is is really is an interesting situation. You talked, Steve, you were talking about... Um, um, uh, Repsol Honda wanting Maverick Vinales and Repsol Honda are absolutely interested in Maverick Vinales they're also interested in Alex Rintz um, but whoever they sign who isn't Danny Pedrosa uh, it's going to um, uh, it's going to 
upset uh, Mark Marcus. Uh, especially Alex Rince, I think, would be an even worse signing for them because, uh, well, because Rince still hasn't forgiven the uh, uh, Alzamora and the Marquez clan for uh, for basically stealing the as Rince sees it for stealing the Moto Three championships from them and handing it to, uh, to to Alex. And if you want to see the, the the different level of talents, then it's it's you know look in Moto Two, look who's the title favourite, and look who's um, Mister. Um, Tenth place, um, that would obviously upset Marquez. Also, Vinales bringing Vinales in that would be a real, real challenge for for Marquez. It'd be Marquez would have to would have to work really, really hard. Uh, I, I mean, uh, and they're not going to bring some, uh, you know, someone who isn't going to be fast enough to beat Marquez. That's the that, that, that's the trouble. Yeah, and I think if you were to look at. Uh the setup they have in Repsol. It's very lucky that right now they've got Danny Pedrosa, who, like, for for all his speed, for all his talent, the one thing that's really key for Pedrosa is he's so low-key. You know, like yeah. we see it whenever we deal with him on a day-to-day basis in the paddock. Some days you're going to get a really open, honest, frank discussion with Danny. Other days you're going to get him really closed off. And it is just a case of, he just wants to ride his bike. Yeah. You know, if he's got a factory Honda contract, it really doesn't matter to him who's in the team beside him. He's just going to go out and do his best. Whereas for someone like Mark, I think, you know, if if he's given the option of who to have as his teammate, he's not going to want to have anyone that's quick. I think we yeah. saw that to a large extent with Casey Stoner as the test rider, where suddenly Casey is undervalued at, at uh, HRC, underutilized as a test rider. And you're already seeing it with him and Ducati, just how much value they place in his feedback. And let's be honest, every manufacturer in the world would place an auto value in his feedback, yeah. but Honda didn't. And the reason for that has to come down to something within the Marquez camp. And that's why you've got no real doubts that while Vinales would be really attractive for every reason under the sun, the one thing that's going to stop it is you don't want to piss off Marquez because in Marquez, you do have the out and out fastest rider in the world when everything is perfect for him. You're not going to beat him. And yeah. Honda aren't gonna aren't gonna disrupt that at all. I think for Vinales, he has had talks with Yamaha already, and it's not going to be a surprise if he decides to if he decides to go there if Lorenzo leaves. But for Vinales, he's he's got to be talking to every team in the paddock now at the moment. Well, yeah, I, I should imagine that there is a, an orderly queue, or perhaps not an orderly queue, more of a disorderly queue forming at his door with people with bundles of cash saying, "Please, um, uh, please come talk to us." I mean, yeah. you know, it, it, any manufacturer is going to want him. Yeah, and he confirmed that over the weekend. I think he said in an interview with uh, with a publication that he had offers from nearly every manufacturer in the in the paddock. So you know, it's just about uh, just about choosing from that. Yeah, just going back to the bundles of cash there, Dave. On the basis of what we saw last year, every team is going to be saying no. There's no bundles of cash. That everything is straightly on the up and up. We're declaring everything to the tax man, but we're just very <laughs> interested in Maverick Vinales signing for us. <laughs> <laughs> a, a good point yes. well made Steve it will be uh, all strictly above board legitimate transactions through uh, through banks and uh, uh, no um, uh, dodgy VAT related shenanigans straight through <laughs> banks in the Cayman Islands <laughs> 
<laughs> no, you've you've given me a beautiful segue there. Talking about dodginess, uh, we'll we'll move on to Moto Two, uh, a race that uh, that free practice and qualifying uh, suggested was going to be was going to be a real stunner. Uh, you had three guys in the front row who all looked very very strong indeed, and then we had a bit of a, a chaotic opening. Um, we saw not just one rider, but we saw several riders. Um, Eight. Ju- Eight riders jumped to start, um, and and therefore and then after that, the kind of penalties were were dished out at different stages through the race, and it just became somewhat farcical after uh, after a while. Um, we heard a little bit from from race director Mike Webb, um, and what was he saying? What was his explanation of the events, David? Uh, basically, what Mike Webb said was that uh, they had. Um, they have cameras on every rider, or I think not on every rider, but I think on every row. Uh, 500, 500 FPS cameras on every uh, frames per second cameras on every every row to check for jump starts, and that camera also shows the sh- the starting lights, uh, so that they can actually see um, uh, the exact time. Uh, that the light goes out to see to check that it's been uh, a jump start. Uh, they apparently had. Um, problems with the uh, with the recording he said something about the recording of playback systems so it sounded like the uh, the, the cameras had actually recorded everything but they couldn't actually get it to display and they were I presume switching it on or switching it off and switching it back on again to try and get it to work again before they can actually see all of the film from all of the cameras and that's why it ended up taking 15 16 laps or something to hand a uh, to, to hand a, a, a a penalty to Morbidelli and uh, and uh, and Cortese. So that was, I mean, it, it was, you know, these things happen. Technical technical issues happen. It's just that it's it looks really farcical. Yeah, and it must be uh, they must be using Apple software up in race direction if they're having to turn it on and off again after uh, <laughs> some glitches. Uh, Steve, what was your view of the incident? Was was it farcical in your eyes? Well, I think was it was it um, fair in your eyes. Well, I think uh, we we all know Mike Webb pretty well at this stage, and every dealing I've had with Mike, he does his best to make sure that everything is above board, that uh, mostly no one's got any comeback on him for making a bad decision, and he has to wait until he's got 100% clear-cut evidence before giving out a penalty. Now, with that being said, no one's going to say that uh, Sunday in Qatar was a good situation because... We were all watching the race. We saw that uh, Morbidelli jumped the start. We saw Cortese jump the start. And we were waiting for a penalty. We were waiting for a penalty. We're waiting. We see Rince, Lowe, Zarco all go through the pits, take their drive, th- take their ride through penalty. And the ride through costs, like when you look at the analysis of lap by lap, it costs about 25 seconds for the actual penalty. And then you lose another three, four, five seconds just from actually racing people to try and get back through the pack. So for... Rince and Zarco especially, uh, and uh, Lowe's, sorry, um, we saw really, really strong pace from them, but they're bottled down in 21st, 22nd when they come out of the pits. And it just means that they don't get to to make their progress through the field. Morbidelli gets a 20-second penalty and he finishes he finishes ahead of them. And, and that's what the issue is for those riders. And again, you know, Mike Webb's hands, they're tied. He needs to have unequivocal evidence that this happened. And he doesn't have that whenever the the machinery isn't working. He has to make the judgment within four laps to say it's a jump start. If he doesn't, then he has to give a 20-second time penalty at the end of the race. So as far as letter of the law, Mike Webb followed it perfectly. As far as the, the eye test, 
it looks bad for Moto Two. But again, I I think this is probably the only thing that could have happened. I think it's good that Morbidelli and Cortese got their penalties because if they had looked at the rules and said, well, they didn't actually get them within the first four laps, let let this slide, everyone would have been in uproar. But it's just unfortunate that. Uh, you know, you saw clearly there was some sort of an issue because you don't tend to see eight riders jump the start unless the lights are on too long. Or we saw um, Alex Marquez said that he thought there might have been a flicker on the lights. Now, um, as far as I know, Race Direction have said there was no such issue, but every rider seemed to say that the, the lights were on for a long time and that's what they felt caused the jump starts. I went. I went back and timed the lights uh, from the from the live feed, and it was three. I came out with three point three seconds. Uh, I think Mike Webb said it was exactly three seconds. Uh, that shows how awful I am at timing, but never mind. Um, what was so clearly the lights weren't on very long. I think there was a number of issues. Firstly, uh, it's the first race of the season. Um, that ten, there tends to be just a little bit more uh, tension than there is normally. Uh, was it Zarco who jumped first? Maybe. There, I mean, there was movement. There was movement at the front of the grid, and whenever there's movement at the front of the grid, you're going to see more. Um, the, the, you're going to see more jump starts than when it's further back, just because you know everyone is looking everyone sees it and it's it's one of these peripheral vision things you just catch it and so you move uh it's guitar it's dark the lights are different the, it, it's different there you've got lots of lights and lots of strange light effects maybe that uh, maybe that affected it um maybe there was a flicker uh, i don't know but if i mean if there was if there ever was a race where there were going to where there were going to be eight people who jump started it was always going to be guitar rather than i don't know Assen or or, or a race later in the season. Yeah, and I, I know from talking to writers, like I remember Michael Laverty jumped to start in 2014, and um, Michael said that uh, you know he he just couldn't uh, first race of the year. Again, the the contrast between a dark sky and the lights make, makes it very easy for you to actually see the lights just start to dim. And for all these riders, it's once the lights start to change, you go. You know, you don't wait for the lights to go out fully. Once it starts to, to, to change that shade slightly, that's the lights going. And, and against that dark contrast, it's very easy to actually see a flicker whenever there may not actually be one. And um, I think first round of the year, everyone's everyone's amped up, you know, and you're, you're ready to go. And uh, it's easy to jump the start for that first round. I think, you know, it's undeniable. Uh, lows and rins on the front row, definitely moved it looked like they both stopped just like Zarco it looked like they stopped in their box and then got going again and by the rules now you are able to if you get stopped in time you're able to go but Mike Webb's got more data than us he's able to see exactly if they did come to a stop and then when they went again so you know I've no doubts that those guys did jump the start it's just unfortunate that we see you know a third of the grid jump off the line and get penalties uh, the rules state that uh, you're ele- well. The rules state that um, if a rider starts and then comes to a full stop and is judged not to have an advantage, then uh, uh, race direction can choose not to impose a penalty on them. But it's about having a clear advantage. Um, th- that's always going to be a judgment call. Yeah, we saw that from Ian O'Neill at Mugello last year, right? Because he jumped the start and then basically stopped in time and then left a little bit 
behind the rest and therefore he wasn't penalised even though it looked to the naked eye that he had jumped the start but he had gained no advantage so yeah because sometimes sometimes actually having a jump start can be um uh, a disadvantage if you yeah. stop yourself because you've got you've got all this adrenaline going and you're in this mindset of right go for it and then you dump the clutch and you go away realize oh shit got to stop again you've got to get the bike stopped again uh, and then reset me- mentally to try and attack again uh, so it's not always necessarily uh, it, it's not always necessarily a, a, a jump start but um, I mean it just it did look the worst thing is it looked farcical I mean like we're talking about Mike Webb Mike Webb is um, absolutely one of the fairest men I know um, but he is very legalistic so he judges uh, things by the letter of the law and uh, that sometimes uh, well you know you'll see this in high profile uh, legal cases in, uh, uh, out in the real world as well fairness reality uh, uh, justice doesn't always look fair so this didn't look fair this just looked stupid yeah, and I think after the after the event, he he recognised obviously that the the twenty second penalties given to Cortesi and Morbidelli weren't you know weren't fair really, and he said that that's something that he's going to take to the GP Commission to discuss whether the the maximum penalty that you can be given through a race can be extended. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, also it's fixed. You know, it's written. It's yeah. written in the rules, so he doesn't have a choice. You know, he doesn't have any discretion. He has discretion on whether to impose the penalty or not, but not the length of the penalty. Sure. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate though that this is what we'll remember the opening Moto Two race of the year for, because we did actually see an awful lot of really good performances. Morbidelli's performance, like I know David, like last year whenever we were talking to Michael Bartholomew about like who they were going to hire as their their second Moto Two rider when Tito was confirmed to move it up, like we were both really keen on them getting Morbidelli. And yeah, I mean, whenever. we basically we basically beat him up and made him to made him sign Morbidelli, but uh, it was uh, yeah, we, we we were very pleased to hear that, that that he actually signed him. Yeah, he's a top top line rider and one of those guys that I think everyone wants to see how good he can be, because you know he's come from a production background, he's come into the world championship, he's shown decent potential at times, and now he's got the chance to really show what he can do, and it's just unfortunate that uh, you know we see what he can do on Sunday. But we're all going to remember the jump start as opposed to yeah. him having a really strong race and being able to fight at the front. And I think, you know, he's he's well placed for this year. And we saw how big a difference there is between him and Alex Marquez already in that team. You know, Alex Marquez last year was a huge disappointment. He came up as a Moto3 champion and rightly or wrongly, everyone looks at that Moto3 championship. And we do think, you know, Rince is a better rider than him. You know, and within that team, Marquez got it hooked up for that one year and things like that, got his championship, but no one rates him as highly as what you look at Rince or Vinales or any of those guys. And uh, now he's up against Morbidelli, who a lot of people don't really rate that highly, but over the course of the year is probably going to be the top rider in that team. And it could well be a big blow towards Marquez's chances down the line. A question for you two guys. Um, uh, obviously, because of the fast, we were robbed of what looked like being quite a good race. I mean, in the past, you know, the, the Moto2 race has always been a chance to 
have a quick snooze uh, because it hasn't been fantastic racing. Uh, it, it looked like, you know, Sam Lowe's looks strong. Morbidelli's obviously strong. Rince looks really strong. Zarco has found his found his groove again. Uh, how do you, do you, Balasari again, looks looking really good. Even things like, you know, Danny Kent making, a, making slow progress, but progress. Luca Marini being much better than I expected him to be and, uh, and, and showing talent. Uh, are you excited about Moto2 this year? I am actually, yeah, because as you said last year, it was really, um, it was basically Zarco, um, it was Rabat, it was Lowe's, and occasionally you would have Tom Ludi in there as well, um, fighting for race wins, whereas I think, as you said, there is a, a greater st- strength and depth this year. Um, I think you could see guys like Morbidelli, you guys like Folger uh, regularly fighting for, for race wins, um, added to the, the kind of the three guys that I expect to be fighting for the championship that are Zarco, Lowe's, and Rins. Um, and then I think, you know, there's also kind of the emergence of guys like Marcel Schroeder, um, yeah. you know, who you could also say could be in there as well. And and as you say, Baldessari, had it not been for for his nasty crash on Saturday afternoon, I think Baldessari probably would have been a podium man had he not jumped to start. That's quite a big if, obviously. Um, and I think we should just mention that Baldessari, you know, what, what a dude that he actually yeah. showed up to the circuit on Sunday after dislocating not one but two shoulders and uh, i think um i think the forward squad posted a video of him on his way to the circuit in the um in the in the lift in the elevator and he was kind of you know using the bar in the elevator to pretend like you know to assume his uh, his, his position on the race bike you know and he was kind of like look you know i can i can hold my ship you know not i'm not prohibited by this and you just think what a bloody mad bastard yeah <laughs> but what but that's the kind of that's the kind of heart you want to see, you know. That's, that's the kind of the 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 cojones that you want to see going into the race. So yeah, I think um, Baldessari is going to be a, a very exciting prospect this year. Yeah, I, I actually have to say it's a good point. I mean, like the forward, the, the I mean, forward had a really tough year last year with all the allegations around it and all the rest of it. But uh, um, you you know you're just really pleased for the team that they actually have a, a seriously good um, um, you know that they have a seriously seriously good Moto Two squad. Yeah, what about yeah. you, Steve? Uh, well, we've talked about it before where this year we all think that Moto2 could be an awful lot stronger. I think for you're completely right, Dave, in saying that the last couple of years Moto2 has been just boring. Like you, you'd sit down, you'd watch the first lap and you'd see that uh, you know top three or four have already broken away from the rest of the field and then by and large they just stay in that order until the flag. And I think this year when you look at the, the depth of the field, it's so much more impressive. I think what we're going to see is Rince and Lowe's would be the two top riders in the championship. Zarko's going to be there thereabouts as well. Behind them, you're going to get an awful lot of times where there's going to be guys just coming from nowhere to win races or challenge for podiums. People like Tom Ludy, you know, a good win on Sunday. But what you're going to get from Ludy is exactly what you've got for the last six years. A guy that is absolutely unbeatable three or four times a year. Absolutely nowhere three or four times a year. And then the rest of the time, it's just a case of where he's actually going to finish. And he's not going to be consistent enough to be a title contender. He'll finish top five or top six, as he always does. But he won't be able to put a championship together. Folger. Folger is as quick as anyone. And we all rate him really highly in terms of just outright talent. We think that, uh, you know, he's a really, really quick rider. But just like Luthi, we've never actually seen him be consistent. And that goes back to whenever he was in 125s. It goes back to what we've seen of him in, in Moto2 as well. You know, last year we saw him winning Qatar, winning Herath, and then he went missing for a couple of, couple, of, couple of races as well. And he needs to iron that out. Whereas I think when you look at Rince, when you look at Lowe's, when you look at Zarco, you can be pretty confident that they're going to be top three 
top four every race have that potential. I think this weekend, um, I think we really saw how strong Lowe's can be. I think his pace through practice was really strong. His pace in the race was very good as well. Once he came out of the pits, Rins we know is going to be is going to be a, a challenger at the at the podiums every race, and it's just a case of between them and Zarco who can actually manage their bad races better and finish on the podium rather than finish fourth or fifth or sixth. Moving on to Moto3 then, the first race of the day and easily the most exciting of those uh, of those three. Um, I think it was a good opportunity to see that we have a field that has not just five, perhaps potentially six exciting names that can be fighting for the world championship that were in the class last year, but we also have four, maybe five very, very exciting rookies as well. Yeah, um, It's going to be a fantastic year, isn't it, David? It, absolutely. I mean, I'm really excited by the rookie. Like you said, just the, the, the I've been so impressed by the speed of the rookies. Uh, Nicolo Bulega, uh, uh, Juan Mir, uh, Aaron Canet, all of them are just you know really really strong. Uh, even Bo Bensnyder, uh, my, uh, my um, uh, uh, the. The 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 Dutch uh, Dutch Red Bull rookies champion, he had a really he, he had a really good race as well. All of them, uh, they all had good weekends. They all showed that they were that they were fast. They all got mixed. And, Bur- and Bulliger was uh, Bulliger was really really special to be fighting. Um, uh, in the front group in his very first race um, to be picking fights with his teammate in his very first race we we, we definitely like that a lot um, yeah it was it was just it was a it was just a really really it was a really entertaining race Steve before the race weekend I was looking at the the Moto3 entry list and I had identified Navarro uh, Fanati Bastianini um, who else fuck uh, <laughs> I'd identified five. Sorry, let me do that again. I'd identified Antonelli, Bastianini, Navarro, Finati as the championship challengers. Um, did anything in the race suggest that uh, we had reason to, to look beyond those four guys? Well, I, uh, again, like we've had this conversation a lot over the winter, Neil, not on the show, but just uh, whenever I was over in Barcelona or anything like that. And Moto3 is, generally speaking, our favourite class to talk about because it's where you're looking at guys coming up from the... The junior world championship you get people just coming up from red bull rookies you get to see riders at their at their purest for want of a better word because they're all 16 17 years of age just glad to be racing glad to be on the world stage and when you look at that uh that list of riders that you had there we did put Bulaga in there as well neil as one of those guys that we think could be a title contender but obviously consistent What's yeah, that? Quadraro was another one, sorry. Yeah. I forgot to mention. Yeah. Is it is it you or me that has Quadraro backed for the title? That's me. Yeah, uh. Sadly. Yeah. <laughs> this is a too. this is a, a side bet that all the listeners should be aware of. Last year my, myself and Neil decided to uh, it must have been halfway through the year. It was ridiculously early that we were making our calls for the 2016 world world champion. And uh, despite Neil being the world's biggest Bastianini fan, he decided that Quattararo was going to be the uh, the guy that was going to win the championship. And I backed Bastianini. And by the end of the season, the two of us were really wishing that we had it backed Navarro to win the championship for next year. But after that first round, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't mind putting money on Bulaga just because he was so combative. Like, I think, uh, obviously enough, it's, only, it's a sample size of one race. But 
he's gone in he's really ruffled an awful lot of feathers right from the outset and he's shown people that he's not going to be afraid to race them he's shown people that uh, despite his size he's capable of being a top Moto3 rider and he really impressed me in, in Qatar I think uh, you know consistency over a championship is going to be the the big challenge for him I think he, he'll win races but uh, over an 18 race seven, an 18 race season it's going to be a big challenge for him to actually be able to to have that title charge but I thought what we saw this weekend was hugely impressive from all the Moto3 riders Antonelli after his huge crash to come back and win the race and just to be so composed because for all his speed we've, no one's really ever doubted how fast he is composure and being able to handle the pressure has always been an issue for him but this this race we really saw him Time has moved to perfection and uh, take the win. You look at Brad Binder, like obviously the pressure's on on Binder this year. It's second year with the IO team. He needs to perform and he needs to win races. But it was a strong start for him in, this, in the season as well. The the guys that Neil named, they're all going to be there through the year. So I think Moto3 could be a really, really competitive season again this year and we could see an awful lot of surprises. Yeah, and Antonelli, I think he had three crashes over the course of the weekend. Um, we heard that he had aggravated uh, an old collarbone injury uh, when he was in a ski holiday just before um, he came out to Qatar for the first uh, for for the test there. Um, guys that were in the paddock were reporting that he was walking around with his shoulder was very swollen. Um, he also had a massive head cold. You know, really wasn't feeling the best. And there was a point on on Saturday where I was thinking, you just need to you know get a result inside the top ten and. And you you know work from there, um, but for him to come through in a composed manner, like you said, Steve, I thought it was it was very impressive. And actually, I was looking back. Um, basically, it took Antonelli 60, 61 races uh, in Grand Prix to score a podium, and then in the last nine, he's been on the podium five times, and three <laughs> of those were race wins. Yeah. Um, and then you, I was looking at, at the results. He he could have been on the podium at um, at Aragon last year. He had to take advent, um, he had to take uh, the, the kind of scenic route whenever Kent high sided in the final corner. He was in the victory fight in Sepang. He was uh, he was fighting for the podium in Valencia, and then t- you know a rash move took out a couple of guys. So if you look at his form over the last ten races, I mean he's basically been in the podium fight in each one of those. So I think he's a he's a good shot. Yeah, the other thing is, I mean, obviously he's a rider who was transformed. The other rider who was transformed was Olivier Loy, uh, who, I mean, obviously had the win last year in um, in Indianapolis in uh, just bizarre circumstances because he went off on, on the right tyres and everyone else had to come in and pit. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, he was he was just incredible. He was fastest in, I think, in most of the free practices. I can't remember exactly how many. Um, didn't get the pole. Um but, just narrowly, though. Yeah, exactly. Just narrowly, and uh, uh, he set his time completely on his own. While uh, who was on the who was uh, who was on the pole again? Fanati. Fanati. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Well, Fanati. Fanati used the. Uh, uh, Brilliant piece of slipstreaming to actually get that little bit of extra uh, extra time, which put him on, on pole. But um, so you know, it looked like Lloyd's transformed himself into a, a again into someone capable of winning races. But then you saw exactly we're talking about combativeness uh, of of Bulliger, uh, but uh, Lloyd was a rider who you know he's clearly fast, but he was uh, pro on KR KR three fast and not not you know five hundred cc Honda NSR five. 500 fast he couldn't fight he couldn't um, uh, he couldn't attack but uh, a lot of promise and nice to see he's a really really nice kid yeah yeah 
Okay, so that that basically brings to an end everything we have to talk about. Um, I'm sure David and Steve could both go on for another hour at least, but uh, my tummy is rumbling. So (laughs) (laughs) I just want to say thank you very much, listener, um, for listening to this edition of the Paddock Podcast. If you enjoy the show and you listen to it through iTunes, please remember to leave a rating and a review as it greatly helps other MotoGP enthusiasts find the show. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast and Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod. Thanks again, and we'll speak to you next time. Hello. Hello. Hello? Hello. Yeah, sorry, I'm just, uh, you know, getting my voice, my voice ready, you know. It's all about that bass. It really is. Do you know, I was at, I was back home at, uh, when I was home in Northern Ireland over Christmas, I realized just how fucking much everyone says we, like I was in a, a taxi place. You were in a wee taxi rank. I was in a wee taxi rank and I was like ordering a taxi and I, and I said, could you get me a taxi please? And the woman was like, what's your wee name there, love? (laughs) (laughs) God, any excuse to fucking place it in. Yeah, you should have uh, said you should have said something like e- Ezekiel Hieronymus. <laughs> I went to the uh, bakery the other day and I was just getting like a few loaves of bread or whatever. Now it was probably about like fucking ten loaves of bread, a few slices of potato bread, a few buns and things like that. And your one says, "Do you want a wee bag with that?" And I'm there, I fucking want a big bag, love. I've got like ten loaves of bread here. Yeah, maybe what? multiple wee bags will be acceptable. Yeah.